I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a special guest for you. Mm-hmm. Dr. Katie Crothapali is the Director of Healthcare Education for Edcetera, a leading provider of continuing education, examination preparation, and licensing programs for healthcare professionals. She is a 2010 graduate from the Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine, and after graduation, she worked as a small animal clinical practitioner, a civilian veterinary medical officer for the Army, and a poultry veterinarian before transitioning into the education space. In 2021, she completed her MBA at the University of North Alabama. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. K. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here. Well, let's talk about how you got interested in veterinary medicine and how you started your career. Well, I was one of those weirdos who, from the time I was like two or three, sort of knew what I wanted to do without even really knowing exactly what a veterinarian did. Mm -hmm. I just loved animals, and, you know, we would take our pets to the vet, and I would be in the exam room, seeing them do their thing, and I thought it was super cool and interesting, and I kind of just latched onto that and um, had a natural affinity for the sciences, so it seemed to be what I was meant to do. And I don't even really think I questioned it very much. (laughs) I just went with it. Um, And I I guess I always imagined that I would be sort of a small town general practitioner, whether that was small animal or mixed animal. I, you know, I could have done either. I think in, um, in school, I learned to love the large animal stuff a little bit more. I definitely didn't grow up with that. But that's sort of what I had in mind as for what my career would be when I was working my way through the process. So has it turned out the way you thought? Not at all. <laughs> it has taken lots of twists and turns that I never would have imagined ha- would happen. Um, so when I was a really small child, I had some allergies to animals, and I thought I had grown out of it by the time I was a teenager, and I thought I was good. Um, unfortunately, third year of vet school, I noticed some symptoms starting to come back of allergies. And, you know, I, I thought, okay, no big deal. We'll get on medication. I'll get immunotherapy. It'll be fine. I didn't really worry too much about it. But um, unfortunately, it got worse over time to the point that uh, I had to give up my main hobby, which was horses. And it got to where it was really difficult to be in an exam room, seeing different patients every 15 to 30 minutes, especially when it was involving cats, because cats were one of my biggest triggers. So Um, that um, was very unexpected and uh, sort of threw me for a loop as far as trying to decide what to do after that because, you know, I had this picture of exactly what my my dream was going to be and what my life was going to be. And it was really hard to let that go and imagine doing something else. And it was scary. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So and then, you know, when I started looking around, I had a couple of things in mind, but none of them still ended up really being what I thought. I decided I wanted to pursue my MBA because I learned over time that I liked some of the business management stuff. But what I happened to stumble upon was a poultry job, which, again, is something that I was never even interested in. I paid zero attention to poultry in school. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I only learned what I thought I would get tested on for the NAVLE, which is our licensing exam. Uh, So uh, that was a nice surprise, and I actually liked it more than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but uh, still wasn't really probably my ideal for long term career sustainability. So 
After that, I started looking around again and just stumbled upon this position with Ed Cetera, which when I started was director of veterinary education over vet prep, vet tech prep, and vet cetera. Um, vet prep is for veterinary students. Vet tech prep is for vet tech students. And vet cetera is continuing education for everyone in the veterinary profession. Now, when you mentioned that you developed health issues that sort of made it difficult for you to move forward in veterinary medicine. I imagine that was very distressing because this is something that you had thought about since you were a very small child. And all of a sudden, now you're starting to realize this life that I had pictured for myself might not be realistic for me anymore. What was that like for you? Um, It was terrifying. Um, I had a really hard time with it initially. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, with our path working through veterinary medicine, trying to get degrees and trying to get licensed. It's a real uphill battle the yeah. whole way. And you get used to kind of fighting an uphill battle. And, yeah. um, you know, I think I just dug in my heels for longer than I should have actually and took medication and, you know, just did what I could. I was like, it's going to be fine. I'll get through it. I'll just keep going. But, um, you know, when it got to the point where it was becoming obvious that wasn't an option, I, I really had a identity crisis sort of. I think I had equated me with veterinarian. I think a lot of us do that, and sure. it was definitely a mistake. <laughs> um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It took a, a lot of work to recognize that I had value in other things and that I had other things to add to the community and other ways to help, and that being a veterinarian was not the most important part of me. Yeah. It took a lot of internal reflection to do that. It was also just uh, upsetting. I mean, there were very honestly days where um, you know, I sit there and cry because I just, just like, I don't even know how to do anything else. What else would I do? Right. Um, you know, you start to, you really don't have a whole lot of faith in yourself in the beginning that you have skills that are transferable to something else because it does, in the moment, seem so specific mm-hmm. to a certain thing. It does. And uh, it wasn't until I took some risk and just started trying to do things I thought I was not qualified to do <laughs> that I realized, oh, I actually yeah. am. <laughs> I actually can do more than I thought I could do. Absolutely. (laughs) I definitely want to come back to that concept of healthy risk taking for sure. But I think that I think that the number of people who enter into the veterinary profession with a clear goal about what they're going to do and then invariably hit some sort of life circumstance that prevents that from continuing, the number of those people is higher than everyone else suspects. It it is so common. And I had a similar thing happen to me where I got a very scary medical diagnosis. And luckily, that's not what it ended up being. But it really made me, it was like a rug pull moment. Like I just like had the rug yanked out from under me. And I had to really think about like, with this disease that they thought I had at the time, would I be able to practice long term? And the answer was no. And then the next question was, well, if I don't practice long term, am I going to be financially OK? And the answer was no. And so I was like, crap, I got to figure out some type of backup plan in quick. And so it was after doing a lot of work with my therapist around that that I ultimately ended up uh, going back to school in in the therapy realm. Um, and I will say that after I finally kind of let go and allowed myself to think about identities aside from a veterinarian, it it actually has improved my mental well-being a lot, a a lot. And now it was an uphill battle, like you said, like it was devastating. And I cried about it a lot. But 
Yeah, no, I agree. I, um, I'm in a much better place now by allowing myself to have other things that matter and other things that add value to my life. And I also agree that it's a much more common problem. It's probably one of the things that I get asked about the most with my really? current position when I re- when I go out and like meet people and <laughs> go to conferences or even just am emailing with our users. You know, a lot of people, what, and it's not always a physical thing. Sometimes it's just, it, it's not what you thought it would be. I think a lot of us yeah. deal with that. You know, you have sure. a, you're like, oh, I'm going to be helping animals. It's going to be great. And then there's stressors that you don't know are coming. In career counseling, there's this concept of like the whole life career cycle. And when you look at a person's life, their needs that they have for their career and from their career change over time. And that's normal. And I don't think that that was ever explained to me when I was a kid coming up or even in veterinary school. Like at no point did anyone say, hey, the vast majority of people have shit that happens to them in their lives that make their relationship with work have to change. Whether it's like sometimes it's joyful things, sometimes it's devastating things, and sometimes it's things that you have to kind of choose between that are both good, you know, and when you are young, the things that you get out of your career are different than when you're older, and they're different for people who have kids, people that care for elderly relatives, you know, all of these other sorts of things come into play. And I think that it's really important for everyone to realize that it's just a healthy, normal thing for your relationship with your career to change over time. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, when you look back historically, there was a lot more of a tendency for people just to get in a position and mm-hmm. grow, you know, grow with that position and stay in that position yeah. their entire career. Absolutely. Historically, yeah. that's been a very common thing. Yes, we and, expected uh, to. Yeah. Exactly. So you think that's normal and you, you think that person must have been loving their job. It must have been great. Those are all assumptions, and it probably honestly wasn't that case. It's just that was the norm. Mm -hmm. And so probably those people were also experiencing the exact same things. They were just staying, you know, and maybe dealing with the ups and downs and the the sacrifices they were having to give up day to day. And, you know, I think we're kind of blessed to actually be in a situation where it's more normal at this point with employers even to be able to change and find something new. You know, it's not... Most people, when they're looking at a resume now, aren't going to look at someone who's changed jobs a few times in the last five years and think that's a negative. I don't. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't think so either. I wouldn't if I was evaluating someone to hire. I would actually honestly think it was kind of a good thing because I would think this person has had exposure to a wide variety of skill sets and they haven't been in practice for 10 or 20 years at the same place in a stagnated role where there's no opportunity for growth. Exactly. So, yeah, we're in a really a great time to be dealing with that normal up and down in your career and being able to reinvent yourself and try new things and and really get to what makes you happy at that time, which is what we all deserve. Yeah, I think so. So what stresses did you encounter in general practice that you didn't expect? Oh, there were a lot of those. (laughs) I was woefully underprepared for that. And, you know, I don't I've thought about this a lot now being in a, in a situation where I work with veterinary students about how you could really prepare someone for it. And some of it, I do think like if someone had told me in vet school, I probably wouldn't have understood and gotten it. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, some of the things that got to me more than I expected were um, one was the pressure of being the person in charge of all the things and responsible for all the things. Um, I did work in clinics growing up from the time I was 16 and I saw things and I was involved in things. but 
when it wasn't my responsibility, I underestimated how that would feel to be responsible for the outcomes of cases and medical treatment, whatever happened in the clinic. And then also, you know, to deal with owner emotions, having having the ability to deal with that beyond me. I definitely did not, as, you know, I, I didn't know what that pressure would feel like. And it was a lot harder for me to get used to and to be able to deal with. I also um, had a hard time with dealing with people's emotions in general. I feel like a lot of us are some, in some ways empaths and we take on the emotions of everyone who's around us. And uh, I had a hard time balancing between like a really sad euthanasia and a puppy appointment and then a, an arthritis case and then another puppy appointment and then another euthanasia. It was um, sort of like emotional whiplash taking yeah. on all those emotions and just flip-flopping back and forth. and. Um, and then, of course, when, you know, when something does go how people don't expect or weren't prepared for and they're grieving and they lash out, you know, as much as we can say it's not about us and that we shouldn't take on those feelings, it's much easier to say it than to do it. Mm -hmm. And I took a lot of that home, um, which I did not expect myself to do. I thought that it would be something I could leave at work. And definitely I am not the type of person who can who can just leave that kind of stuff at work, unfortunately. Yeah. I agree. I think that what you said about veterinary students, even if someone tried to explain this, might not truly understand because until you live it, you don't, it's just a hard thing to explain. Because I, I remember people telling me, you know, you got to remember that there's a client on the other end of that leash, you know, the things like that, where I was like, duh, like, I know that, like, you know, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't understand what they're saying, which was, you are at the mercy of the person on the other end of the leash. Absolutely. And and that's really what they should say. I yeah. feel like you you are you are actually not in control of anything that happens. Yeah. The owner is and uh, your ability to advocate for the patient is somewhat limited and that the other thing that I wasn't truly prepared for and I again people said it I thought mentally that I understood it but in practice, no, I was not prepared, is the degree to which finances dictate the treatment that I can provide. And that's mostly, I think, because in veterinary school, we, I mean, most people that come to a veterinary teaching hospital, when you present them with, you know, thousands of dollars in estimates, are like, okay, <laughs> because or else they wouldn't be there. And so um, I did not get a lot of practice counseling people about having to provide palliative care when there's no money. Yeah, we or, definitely didn't get any of that. You know, there, yeah. that just wasn't a situation that came up. And it's it's more that than the OK right. in, in general practice. It's it's the opposite. So, um, yeah, I, I agree that that's something that we definitely aren't prepared for. And I also, you know, this is something I struggled personally with was, and it's not, it's not realistic is the thing, but, you know, when you are saying that you're having to choose something someone can't afford, and then when someone is like, oh, you're just in it for the money, yeah. that's a deep hurt because mm -hmm. it's it true. <laughs> like, uh, in a way, it is mean, a career. Sure. I like, mean, <laughs> I, I am in it <laughs> to make a living. So it's like digging at that very deep sense of guilt that right. you can't do more for all of them exactly. and that you know yes it's the owner's responsibility but then you're also involved in that decision that isn't what you would have liked it to be 
Mm-hmm. Um, that would that you know that was always a really hard thing for me. Absolutely, absolutely. Emotional blackmail mm-hmm. is a thing. Yeah, and I you know I don't think that. Well, let me rephrase that. I think that there are some owners who purposefully try to manipulate yeah, their veterinarians. Most of them don't. Yes, I agree. It's a small percentage. I think most people are just kind of going through life, you know, and then something crazy happens with their pet. Uh, I see it a lot working ER just because it's like, you know, the people are here. This wasn't their plan for the day. They're irritated. They're having to wait. What they really want is to come in, have it be something quick that you can send medicine home for that is inexpensive, and then you can just promise them the pet will need no follow-up care or any expensive test. Goodbye. It's like they want an option C when they only have A and B to choose from. Well, or that, or they want option Z, but for it to truly be the best option, Mm -hmm. cost almost no money, be extremely quick and convenient. And then I'm like, have you seen what your animal looks like? (laughs) It's just lying there, okay? No medicine I can send you home with is going to fix this catastrophe that we got going on right here. And they probably feel some guilt and... And right. a lot of times there's denial, too. Yes. It's like when they finally do get to the point of being like, oh, crap, mm-hmm. <laughs> then then it's the grieving starts already. And we're right in the middle of the grief process, which is a very normal human process that we all deal with. But being on the receiving end of it mm-hmm. is very difficult, especially when you have other things going on. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the thing that I hear the most, I would say, at the ER is, what do you mean? They've always been healthy. And I'm like... Um, we're all healthy till we're not (laughs) have you ever maybe had a relative that got sick and you know how they were healthy until they weren't that is the same situation with animals (laughs) like it's like people think there's such a thing as healthy animals and unhealthy animals and healthy animals are just never going to have a problem and unhealthy animals are the ones with problems and so then that but that's obviously not true like Something kills all of us eventually. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you that can't is true. Stay healthy your whole life. At some point, yeah, shit starts going wrong. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> no, that's that's true though. I, I didn't really think of putting it like that, but that is a thing that I heard a lot of as well. <laughs> Where, and it, I've I've literally gone to telling people, you know, everyone's healthy till they're not anymore, <laughs> yeah. and then they kind of look at me like <gasps> shocked that I said that, and then they're like, oh yeah, that that sounds right. Actually, and I'm like, yeah. Of it does sound right because it is accurate <laughs> reflection of what life is like. But anyway. If I ever end up in clinical practice again, I'm stealing that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've also had to start telling people, and now I only do this if it's getting severe, that I'm not God. Yeah. Okay. I am not an omniscient, all-powerful being because literally people will be like, so this is what you recommend. Yes. I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't mind spending the money to do these things. But I really need a guarantee that the pet is going to be fine. And as long as you can promise me that the pet is going to make a full recovery, then I have no problem spending the money. And, and they'll be talking about, like, the tests that we need to do to right. even find out what it is. And I'm like, so I don't know what it is. We're talking about doing tests. Because I don't know what it is, I can't tell you what the prognosis is. I need to know what the tests say to give you more information about the prognosis. And we'll, like, go in around and then... A couple of weekends ago on the ER, I had this exact situation um, with a profoundly ill kitty cat who was 
ancient had a thousand problems, okay, and everything. And I went over a very comprehensive estimate. I went over very comprehensive care. I told the owner that I think that the pet has a poor prognosis. Every patient with these problems has a poor prognosis. And then, you know, they were just trying to just really get me to be like, but I think your pet is going to be okay. And I'm like, I, <laughs> so I did just finally tell her, I am not God. And she kind of teared up a little bit. And I was like, I'm sorry to be that blunt with you, but I'm not like, I can't, I can't control what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think learning to be blunt was actually a benefit to me, like, yeah. you know, and it does shock some people. It's not for everyone, but I do think that in a situation that's challenging where someone is just not accepting the situation or just not getting it, it can at least get the person to the point of accepting the situation and making a decision that's good for the pet rather than remaining in denial and continuing to not make a decision, which is really like the worst outcome. Yeah. Everybody is so busy. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just not back when, when somebody would come in and spend an hour and that was a norm, like, there, it's not possible to run a clinic that way. No. And, and I understand, you know, uh, from a pet owner's perspective, if you're upset and you're having a hard time making a decision, that's really stressful. Right. But at the same time, we have to do what we have to do to take care of all the pets that are showing up that day who are in our care. Exactly. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a rough, rough situation. Right. Right. Because if you're sitting there trying to decide whether to even do testing on a patient that is like, you know, stable technically, but not in a great situation. Yeah, it's teeter-tottering. Exactly. <laughs> like if you're if you're waffling and it's taking you hours to decide, I gotta move on. Yeah. To the dozen other bullshit things that are happening. Like it's like snake actively bite, dying ones. Right. <laughs> Knife to the chest. Uh you know like Yeah. Yeah. Dog fight. Like it's just always something and I don't your veterinarians, regular vets, don't have time. We don't have time. Mm, no, nobody does right now. Mm -hmm. It's just we're all overwhelmed. The appropriate person to address these things to would be like a therapist or like a veterinarian who specializes in hospice, right? Yes. Just as hospice who can charge appropriately doesn't have other critical cases coming in because it's hospice. Nothing is critical. <laughs> hospice, <laughs> right. 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 Um, like that would be the appropriate uh, place for for these kinds of things, but I find that owners kind of don't plan ahead. And even if they have the 16-year-old animal with five comorbidities who's hanging on by a fingernail, at no point do they plan, like, let's think about what end-of-life care is going to look like. What if XYZ happens? Are we going to do major stuff? Are we going to go to the specialist? Like, having those conversations ahead of time would be really beneficial to everyone yeah <laughs> but I don't yeah. like and they I don't think, no I think reason. part of that is the denial because everybody yeah. just wants to assume that things are going to be fine yeah, and their animals are going right. to live forever and it's you know or it's just going to pass in its sleep everybody hopes for that it almost never happens yeah, that doesn't you know like, <laughs> but everybody's thinking in their mind mm -hmm. that's what's going to happen to their baby right um, or that passing away at home is going to be some peaceful thing right and I'm like you've never been through hospice with a loved one, mm -hmm. I can tell, because it is not peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily. No, no, it's, it's horrible. Like, I, you know, it's I'm very glad. stressful. <laughs> I'm glad we have the ability with our animals yeah. to make that process smooth. Absolutely. I, I really do consider that a blessing. It's one of the things I actually like most about when I was in clinics yeah. was being able to provide 
a peaceful passing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so important. Yeah. So, Dr. K, a few years ago, you branched out from clinical practice and started getting into non-clinical work. And I believe maybe originally you worked for company that buys and sells practices and things like that. Was that your first job outside of regular practice? Yeah, it was. And I sort of did that alongside the poultry thing just to dip my toe into it, yeah. which ended up being a good you know, situation for me because it was sort of um, independent contract, commission-based, and, and it was just to try it out. Yeah. And it was nice to have the safety of some sort of clinical work that I knew would have a regular set income coming in while trying to learn this other stuff. And um, the reason I went that route was, again, just out of necessity when I was working with the Army and seeing about like the budgeting process and the forecasting process, I started to like some of the business side of stuff and then went and got my MBA. And I, I was like, well, this is one aspect of that. It's not a thing I've ever done, but maybe I'll like it. So I really just started at that point reaching out to people who I found who were in that business mm-hmm. and asking if they had a position open or asking if they would even just meet with me and talk about their business. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to find someone who at that time was also looking for a representative in the area that we were in. And, um, you know, I learned a lot with that. It wasn't the right fit for me, but I'm very glad I tried it. Sure. You know, I think that's that's kind of the key is you have to try some things that aren't the right fit sometimes before you find the thing that is. And um, you have to be willing to take that risk and, you know, try a thing. And it's not really a failure, but it can feel like a failure in the time and the moment. Mm-hmm. And being type A perfectionist people, we don't really like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but like being willing to say, oh, I tried this and it's not for me mm-hmm. is a big part of finding the right thing when you're looking for something outside of what your original plan was. Yeah. So I remember around that time texting you uh, because it was around the time that I got this scary diagnosis that ended up, you know, not being really a thing. And I texted you and I was just like, hey, do you have any advice for branching out to, you know, outside of clinical work? I have some stuff going on and I might need to look at what that would look like in the future. And I remember you replied back and said, I just started cold calling people. And I remember that I uh, reacted to that as like, holy crap, like that's so brave. And I think I texted you back and was like, fuck yes, girl, like you do, yeah, do it, you know. Um, but that's a great example of a healthy risk. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about healthy risk taking. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Where do you start when you're thinking about branching out and you're a little bit nervous? Maybe you never, you know, think about advocating for yourself or networking before. Maybe it's just not something that comes naturally to you. How do you get started with that process? That's a good question. I think it's a little different for everyone. But for me, um, sort of what it originally started with was, was me really looking at the things that I liked about clinical practice and trying mm-hmm. to define them in broader terms oh. to even see what options I might have. So like the business thing, I wasn't thinking that that was business related when I was doing it. I was like, this is just what I do in clinical practice and it's how I get things done. And um, it really took stepping back and be like, oh, no, that is actually business management. Yeah. The stuff that I like. So, you know, then I was like, okay, well, what kind of jobs are veterinary related that have business management aspects? Mm-hmm. So that could be that could be something like the uh, you know buying and selling practices. It could be sales mm-hmm. in big industry and corporate. 
It could be being a medical director in a big corporate hospital. You know, there's there's lots of things that that would apply to when you come out and like big picture, mm-hmm. look at it and try to define it. Yeah. So that's really where I started. And then also uh, I do a lot of like worst case scenarioing, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> which I think can be good or bad depending on the person. But right. for me, for me, it's a good thing because I'll sit there and be like, Okay, so if I try this thing and I fail, well, I should pre- I should pre- preface it with, um, you know, I got myself in a place where I had worked pretty hard, been pretty f- frugal, I learned to budget pretty well, yeah. and so I had an, a little bit of a cushion, you know, sure. in the bank <laughs> to just just for like to make me feel safe <laughs> when yeah. I was trying some of you these things. You had an emergency break, you exactly, know? exactly. Sure. So, um, you know, I had that. And I could always remember when I was having trouble. I've got some safe space that I can be okay for a few months until I find something. It's not going to be the end of the world. But within that context, I would sit there and be like, okay, so if I try this thing and I fall on my face, what's the worst thing that happened? Happen? People will think I'm dumb and I Ooh. fail at that job. Ooh, I already and- hate that feeling. No, <laughs> that is the worst thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, then, but then I was like, but my family still likes me and my friends will still love me and they will still support me. And the next people I meet will not know anything about this other thing that happened. So they're not going to have any clue that I failed at this other thing sure. royally, right? Absolutely. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. And also even even bigger than that, looking at, okay, like you, you hear about all the time, what do people think about on their deathbed? What are their yeah. regrets? And, you know, I'd be like, am I going to regret that I lost out on that time with my family? Or am I going to regret that, you know, I tried this thing and it failed? Or am I going to regret staying in this thing I'm not happy in mm. just to be safe? Mm-hmm. I'm going to regret staying in the thing that I'm not happy in just to be safe. And so I could always go back to that when I was losing motivation and feeling a little bit uncertain about trying something new. Mm -hmm. Um, Downside of being willing to take risks is sometimes I'm prone to taking too many of them. They can go the other way. at one time? Is that what you're saying? At one time. Or or just like if if things get a little uncomfortable, I might be like, oh, I can just jump ship and find something else. (laughs) Because now that I know I can do it, I'm like, I'll land on my feet. It'll be fine. (laughs) So I had to come back to even happy medium to be like, oh, you know, this is is a little bit hard, but I shouldn't jump ship because it's still good. We just need to hang in there. There are going to be ups and downs and that's normal. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, healthy risk taking definitely got me where I am and helped me to realize that I, I am going to land on my feet and be okay and that I can adapt to different situations and that as veterinarians, we have skills that are applicable to a lot more than we than we thought, you know. Yeah. Now, when we were getting ready to record the podcast, you brought up a famous quote. Do you remember what the quote is? <laughs> uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and then expecting a different response. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. That is, uh, though, what uh, I often do. <laughs> Uh, is continue to do the same thing and think like, well, this should turn out better. Yeah. If I try really, really hard or something. I think we all do that, though. Like, it's, you know, again, when you feel safe or or something's known, you're like, I'll just keep railing against the machine and it'll get better, but I'll just Mm -hmm. stay here. Yeah. Because it feels safe and you're like, I'm doing a thing. It's going to get better. But uh, I think it's not true nine times out of ten right. that you actually do have to make a change and a a real change, not not just a I'm going to say words at someone and hope they change it for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I say that from experience. Like I I definitely did that wrong a lot of in a lot of situations and stayed places longer than I should have because I was I felt like I was doing something, mm-hmm. but I really wasn't making a change and it never was going to change. Yeah. So if you struggle with things like people pleasing, it can be harder to prioritize yourself. How do you go about doing that? 
Uh, probably not very well still. <laughs> That's a work in progress. And I think it is for a whole lot of us who are veterinarians. We um, definitely feel like we need to give our all to the job. And again, a lot of us are type A, definitely people pleasers. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to focus really, really hard on accepting the fact that if I don't take care of myself first, I can't take care of anybody else. And also Mm -hmm. that I'm not doing my best work if I'm overextending myself and I'm exhausted. Um, So those two things help a lot. The other thing that has been super helpful to me is um, coming to the realization that I'm only responsible for myself and my reactions. Um, You know, if I'm doing my best and trying to help someone and I draw a boundary that is to protect me and keep me functional and have a sustainable career and they lash out at me, whether that's at work or family or friends, anybody, I have had to learn to separate myself from that and say, that's not on me. I did my best. Their reaction is on them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully we come back and meet in the middle. But Ultimately, if we don't, that's not my fault. I did everything I could. That's so healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. I think once you once you start to realize that you cannot behave in some imaginary perfect way to get other people to not throw a tantrum or whatever, you right. know, like whatever the <laughs> yeah. case might be, your life gets a lot better because you're like, I, this is not my fault that they're acting this way. They just have chosen. Yeah, to yeah. do so, and I can't control that. Yeah, and so it's very—it's freeing to just be like, <sighs> and I, there's like a constant <laughs> reminder of I'm not responsible for other people's feelings, and it's none of my business what they think about me. That's correct. Yeah. That doesn't give you license to be a dick, right. but right. like, right. you know, as long as you've examined yourself mm-hmm. and been like, yeah, I mean, I really feel like I did everything that I could to mm-hmm. be professional and kind. And let's, you know, let's be honest, too. There are situations where I have not done that. Like, I've made a mistake and I've learned from it. But at the same time, as long as I feel like as long as I learn something, then it's okay. I was still doing my best at that moment. Maybe I made a mistake and I was unprofessional and that caused someone to have a stronger reaction they would have otherwise. I learned from it. I'm human. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake. It's okay. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's called practice. Yeah. For a reason. In uh, preparing for the podcast, you talked a lot about manifesting the job that you want, finding ways to recharge yourself when you're not at work. What are some important takeaways for people to understand about finding that perfect fit? You know, I think it's just really important to remember how how much we're motivated by fear and to <laughs> recognize it when yeah. it's happening and be able to stop the thoughts and feelings that kind of perpetuate that and get you stuck. Um, I know I felt I felt stuck several times in my life, and it took a lot of effort to get out, but I get less of those stuck feelings over time because I've learned to recognize when I'm getting in that place. So when I start to feel anxious and afraid or tell myself that I'm not good enough or that I can't do it or whatever, I've gotten to where I can recognize that behavior, stop it, (laughs) and then replace it with some healthy behavior Mm -hmm. of reminding myself why I can do it or what skills I have are transferable or, or, you know, how I can go about trying it anyway. So that's an important thing. I think it's also good just to really prioritize what you really want to do in a big picture way. So not getting super nitty gritty into I want to perform surgeries on cats, (laughs) you know, like, look. Getting to, I'm good with my hands and I'm good with hand-eye coordination, or 
I really like talking to people. Mm -hmm. I really like getting to know people, getting those big picture things that you enjoy and trying to find positions that are outside of the box that meet those needs are super important to figure out what kind of your ideal is and what things you want to try. Yeah. I like talking with clients one-on-one about difficult medical cases, reviewing the options, and helping them come to terms with the choices that they're making and managing their feelings about them. So I went to school to be a therapist. Which is it's perfect. Like, I, so, it's a highly transferable skill, yes, actually. Yes, and needed. It's super needed. Right. And I, like, I wouldn't have recognized it for what it was at the time, but like, I've referred clients to you. And a lot of it was for that reason. Oh. Like, there are lots of, you know, plenty of vets who have a lot of technical skill, but your ability to actually connect with people and get them to a good place to make a decision and be okay with it was actually one of the reasons that I referred a lot of people to you specifically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're definitely better at it than I was. Like that, I, I am not meant to be a therapist. I, I do like um, connecting people with situations to help them get better, but I am not the one to actually affect that change. Well, that is really special to me, and now I feel... Embarrassed slightly, but, <laughs> uh, but in like a flattered way. Yeah, yeah no, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> Let's shift gears just a little bit and sort of go over categories of things that aren't small animal general practice. Because I feel like people who are feeling kind of stuck or maybe like they're not loving what they're doing right now and they might want to try some other things when they start to think about what would those things be, they're kind of like, hmm, pharmaceutical sales. And then that was the only thing on the list and they cannot make any additional items. So besides pharmaceutical sales, (laughs) what sorts of things are out there and how do you find them? So that's an interesting question. Um, The way I did it might have not been the best. I literally well, works. So I just Google things. Google it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, and I started like, okay, veterinary. I Googled veterinary and jobs. And of okay. course, that brought up kind of the the more normal ones like pharmaceutical veterinary companies and um, public health veterinary jobs, mm-hmm. you know, USDA, APHIS, food safety, um, toxicology positions. Um, and, and then from there, I was like, okay, well, what, what can I really branch off from with there? So then I was just like, medical industry. <laughs> and yep. that gets out of veterinary, right? That gets uh-huh. you to human health care, which they will hire veterinarians in yep. some human health care positions. And Dude, that can be qualified for that yeah, as like, a veterinarian. We have the skills to understand any of the scientific, you know, needs of that job, whether mm-hmm. it's research or pharmaceutical, you know, whether it's uh, toxicology, we have all that education. It might not be what we use every day, mm-hmm. but we've got the base for it. And yeah. all you have to do is really study it again. And it all comes back. That's one thing I've noticed. Like, we remember more than we think we remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, you might be like, ah, I didn't pay attention to that. But you you did learn some of it. Yeah, and and you there. got the base. <laughs> you just have to go back to it. So, and then, you know, I backed out even more. I was like, life sciences. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. big picture. And that, you know, gets you to regulatory affairs, CMCC, writing, editing, medical illustration. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's, um, you know, the clinical but not like aquatic medicine, wildlife medicine. Uh, poultry medicine's a good example. It's yeah. it's not at all what people think is clinical, and and it's really research heavy. So if you're someone who's super into research 
and is okay with doing a bunch of necropsies, mm-hmm. poultry, poultry health is great, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, honeybee medicine yeah. is an up-and-coming thing. It is. It is. I actually just talked to someone the other day about that who was getting uh, kind of studied up to be able to do it. So um, it, it really is about just searching and anything that you think might be along the right lines, trying to, uh, you know, curate your resume to highlight the things that would apply to that job. And then if you can, if you know someone who is involved in that company or, um, you know, obviously take advantage of that. If you don't, just make your resume as good as you can. Write a cover letter that's awesome where you highlight your skills that are appropriate for that job and send them everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I was starting to investigate those sorts of options, I literally made a list of everyone that I know that was in what I call like a non-traditional veterinary role. And I contacted all of them and I was like, hey, just to let you know, I'm starting to investigate options. I left out the part about why. Why is not important. Nope. Okay. Doesn't matter. Don't matter why. They don't need to know why. Just say, you know, do do you have anything open? And I got back really interesting things that I never would have thought of. And uh, ultimately ended up doing a couple of things. Like I started writing for Vin. In in November, I'm going to start a job with the University of Arizona. I'm not moving to Arizona. Uh, it's, a, it's a remote job, but it's mentoring veterinary students in their clinical rotations. And uh, now neither one of those things are like going to pay all my bills and stuff, but they're very interesting things that are right up my alley that then allow me to to reduce my clinical hours to the point that I stay happy. I felt a lot of guilt about that about reducing my clinical hours mm-hmm. to stay happy. But then I had days like I had uh, this past weekend where I had the time and energy to do things that are important to me, meet with my family and things like that. And I remember thinking, like, God, what was I doing before? Like, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this. Yeah. And- well, you know, somebody said to me recently, and it was really useful advice. We all feel guilt when we back off and change a little bit. But sustainability is really what it's about because right. you aren't doing any good if you burn out and you're just completely done. Right. You know, and right. we're, we're all contributing as long as we're continuing to do something like we're contributing. And it doesn't matter how much, how often, like if it's sustainable and you're happy, mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. Right. For me right now, with my sort of unique situation where I travel to school most days of the week and that kind of a thing, I needed something that was highly flexible and that, that'll also change again. And I just, I'm going to have to just be okay with that. But it's been a hard thing to get used to. I feel like there are some members of our profession that put a lot of pressure on other veterinarians to stay in clinical practice and to really tie themselves to down to a clinic and to work crazy amounts of hours and then kind of have this attitude of like, if you're not killing yourself to help your patients, then, you know, you're not worth anything. But uh, it took me and it took me a long time to kind of shake that off, um, that indoctrination or whatever. <laughs> but I'm finally getting to the point where I can see now that they're they're wrong, because what's better? Me reducing the number of days per week that I do clinical work, because that's what my health dictates I have to do. Or continuing to go on the way that I was, getting incredibly ill and not being able to work at all. Like, which one is going to help more animals? 
Yeah, it's net benefit, right? <laughs> right. Well, and we all, I think we all know too, like some veterinarians who have done that and, and just end up bitter and miserable and, and not just physically mm-hmm. sick, but also like just mentally really not good. They don't enjoy their family, don't, don't enjoy their job. They don't like animals anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be that. And I will do everything I can to not be that. I agree. Yeah, it's Absolutely. not fun. Been there. It's not. It's not <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. It took years to grow out of it, but it's not That type of attitude is not healthy, and it's not something that, as a profession, mm-hmm. we need to perpetuate. <laughs> no, I'm just getting to the point now where I like puppies again. <laughs> So no, that's that's true. Like I, oh. I also, <laughs> I know it's it's the puppy talk. I hated the puppy talk so um, much. I will say that's a thing that I noticed. Um, I used to if I was out walking around or whatever. Yeah. Any dog that I saw, I immediately was like, oh, that's what it's gonna die from. You know, right. yes. you like you see a certain breed, you're like, oh, cancer. That dog's got <laughs> luxe and patellas. I can see it from right. here. Right, and like the further I get from you know, full-time clinical practice, like, I obviously talk about clinical things, and I'm involved in continuing education, so it's there, but the further removed I get from it, I'm just like, oh, doggy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of nice to go back to that thing that made me want to be a vet in the first place. Yes. <laughs> yep. Exactly. One of the things you talked about earlier was asking, you know, you said you made a list of people that you knew asking for help. I don't know how common it is, but I felt guilty about that. Like, you felt like the people you were contacting would be like, ooh, what, what's she asking me this for? Kind of either that or it was just kind of like I felt like it was something that I needed to do on my own. Because oh. if I ask for help, then I'm less than. I can't, I can't, I can't find myself a job. Okay. And so that, that there's no shame in it. I mean, I'm extremely grateful to both of you because of the job that I have now without and, you know, getting help from both of you, I would be still somewhere at a desk, miserable. Now I'm at my own desk and I'm a lot happier. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. I actually, I, I, I recognize that and I've felt that before. Um, I think that, you know, I grew up in a situation where it, you were supposed to be really self-reliant. And if you weren't, you were failing and you were weak and mm-hmm. you were, like you said, less than. Mm-hmm. So I did struggle with that some early on of that it's healthy to have a community and rely on people and yeah you do your best and you try to help yourself but then when you need help mm-hmm. your community is there for you we're meant to be that way but so many of us you know grew up with the the idea that you take care of yourself and if mm-hmm. you can't you're a failure yeah mm-hmm. and i think you know in the professional realm i i don't think it's very common at all for people to just apply to a position like and then not know anyone, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like mo- the way that the professional world really works is that you have an in, you mm-hmm. know, and like, you might get randomly hired just by someone you've never met. I mean, hell, it's happened to mm-hmm. me before. But like, when I look back across my career, the majority of my jobs, the majority of opportunities that I've been presented with have been because I knew someone and they knew that I was kind of looking a little bit on the down low, and then it's like that veterinary small world. rumor yeah. mill, you know, that yeah. goes around or whatever and stuff. Everyone kind of like pretends like they don't know stuff, but really everyone knows all of the stuff. And yeah. so, like, you know, and it's not just veterinary though. Like, I think that's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. That I mean, people employers get so many resumes in one application across their desk. Like, 
if if somebody says, hey, I know this person, that's immediately going to get you more Mm -hmm. likely to be interviewed, you know, and and then if they can ask that person who you know, and they're like, yeah, that person's great. She's wonderful to work with. You know, that's even more likely to get you hired for the position. So there's and there's no reason not to Mm -hmm. take advantage of those relationships and and friends. I would say that right now, especially for veterinary workers and veterinarians, those positions really need to be filled in a lot of places. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so if you know someone who ends up then recommending you for a job, I actually think that they would be excited about that because they are probably going to be looked favorably upon by their bosses for for recruiting. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I know places that pay like a bonus if you successfully recruit a new employee and that kind of a thing. And so I don't necessarily know that it would be an imposition. It might be a help. And if you were in any way nervous about like what that person would say, you can always ask, would you be able to provide me a favorable reference? Yeah, for sure. And, um, and you know, if they're like, no, then mark that one off your list. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. right. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I under- underestimated, too, like how much people actually do like helping their friends. Like, yeah, that's that is a part of friendship. And some people consider that integral. Yeah. And if you don't allow them to help, they're almost like, gosh, you know, am I really a friend? You know, mm-hmm. that I, I didn't know that was a thing because that's not how I grew up. Oh, yeah. it's, it's much more recent than I realized that I have friends who actually want me to ask them for help yeah. when I need it and, and take great pride in being able to help me. Even if it's something silly, like, you know, getting my garbage can off the curb when I'm out of town. Like, they're like, yes, absolutely. I would like, you know, people people do like showing their friends mm-hmm. that they're there for them. And um, that that's how we grow in our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I never mind if anybody asks for anything, but. Even now, I mean, I've gotten a lot better at it, but even now, like, I ain't going to lie for about three months now. I've been thinking about, like, maybe I can see if Grider has a day where she can go with me to get my hair cut because it's about a year overdue now, and she knows how I feel about going to get my hair cut. Yeah, we talked about it on a whole podcast episode <laughs> and, before. And i got to find a new place because, okay. I mean, it's been a year, so. <laughs> I'll go with you. <laughs> It's sad. Only if I get to sit in the chair beside you and spin. (laughs) I have no control over that. (laughs) I'd bring, you know, I'll buy you a stool. Okay. (laughs) You know how I'm about buying stools? That's right. How you are about your hair and your stools. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You can always rely on me for something awkward. (laughs) So briefly, you mentioned resumes. Now, this is super important in this day and age, right? The resume, because it is often not read by people anymore. It's read by like AI software Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So do you have any tips for people about resume building and how to draft one? I do. And I'm not an expert, obviously. This is all just stuff I've learned from you know, trial and error and also research, right? Yeah. Um, definitely you want to hit keywords. That's extra, extra important if you're applying for a government job. Okay. But even in, in regular, like, practice, when you're looking at an applicant tracking system, mm-hmm. hitting keywords can be beneficial because you never know exactly how much they're relying on artificial intelligence to actually pull out which which resumes actually match. Okay. So um, what I what I would typically do is, you know, the typical resume is going to have, you know, your education and your past jobs and maybe a small description of what you've done at those past jobs. 
as well as, uh, you know, skill, skills you've gotten, a list of skills. Mm-hmm. So I try to pull out keywords uh, either in the description of what I've done for the jobs in the past or in the skills list. And um, then I'll also try to highlight exactly how my skills apply to the job I'm applying for. That may not be picked up by the applicant tracking system or artificial intelligence, but it will be what grabs their attention when it actually does get in front of a human. Yeah. So if, you're, if your resume is super just boring, you know, listing out keywords and you don't add to that, mm-hmm. it's not likely to get someone's attention. So, you know, adding a cover letter that actually clearly, you know, aligns where you're, this is what I learned in this and this is how it'll apply and help your business trying to highlight what you add to the company. Mm-hmm. Those are all things that are going to get you from that initial stack mm-hmm. onto the next step, yep. which is interviewing. Um, and so I, I think you do need to put a lot of attention to your resume. It's not something to just slap together and send it out. It's not going to work if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. You really do have to make sure you're tailoring it to the job that you're applying for mm-hmm. and hitting all those keywords. Yeah. Now, what's the difference between a resume and a CV. So a CV is a lot more around research. So that's where you're going to be listing, you know, research projects you've completed, any publications you've been in, and that is typically going to be more applicable to a research-related job. So a lot of times, uh, you know, if you are applying for a research scientist position or something along those lines, they they would rather have a CV than a resume. But say you're applying more for a um, creative writing type job, mm-hmm. they're going to want a resume more than a CV because they don't actually care that much about research-related yeah. <laughs> publication. They might like a little of it in a summary, but they're not going to want the, like, three-page list if you've been public- published a lot like some of the CVs I've seen, you know? Yeah. So um, it is important to know the difference and to decide which format to use based on the job you're applying for. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about hitting keywords... What you're meaning is reading the job description as it's posted. I mean, probably Correct. online. Yes. Okay. And then looking for, so say they say, you know, about the position. I don't know. Candidate will provide community outreach regarding veterinary medicine. So then you would figure out a way to put in your resume the words community outreach. Exactly. <laughs> I would, yes. Okay. Along with a little description, yes. <laughs> right. So it yeah. would be like, Generic animal hospital associate veterinarian, you know. And then community outreach by blah, blah, blah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. 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 It, it takes, it's, it's a science <laughs> trying to do that. But, uh, okay. yeah, and I, I will say with the government jobs, and I say this specifically because a lot of people ask about it, and it's things that, I, it's something that I've done and I've learned more about. But um, with that, you know, you don't have to be super artistic about it because it really is a super basic system. But if you're doing something outside of government, try to make it sound good, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. K, anything else that uh, you feel like people really need to know about seeking alternative jobs? You know, I would just say, you know, if, if you're unhappy and you've tried everything you can think of in your current position to make it better, meaning you've really looked at yourself, you've looked at the situation, you've thought about what could happen to support you better and make you happier, you've shared that with your employer or, or tried to make it happen if you happen to be the owner yeah. and you're still not happy and you're feeling really burdened. Go to some of those things about, you know, taking some risks and talking to yourself and finding out what skills are transferable and just make a change. You know, it's not it's not worth being unhappy for the majority of your life. We spend so much of our time at work. It shouldn't be a thing that consumes us and ruins all of the rest of our life. Yeah. 
I agree. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, this is the ending of our last regular season episode for season three. Wow. And season four will launch in spring 2023. I can't <laughs> believe that we're going to be working on season four. I know, right? <laughs> right. Now, we will have the Halloween spooktacular episode coming out. For real. Next week. For real, for real. Yes, it is actually going to happen. It's not going to be like last year. (laughs) Knock on wood. (laughs) Hopefully a bunch of really terrible shit doesn't occur this year, too. Just, you know. Yes. Probably jinxed it on that. But anyway, we're going to be talking about the history of werewolves. (laughs) Ow. I can't help. Then we'll see you next semester. No. (laughs) Not next semester, next season. Oh, been going to too much school. Okay. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. TikTok! Oh, no. TikTok. And it's at Intervets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. It does. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.